to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether, here with co-host Tina Pippin. This month, we are thrilled to welcome two teacher activists, visionaries who exemplify what it looks like to combine classroom teaching with broader lived commitments to grassroots organizing, accompaniment work, and critical reflection on systemic injustice that shapes our school systems. They also reflect the friendships that can form out of political solidarity and struggle. Renee Rodolfi and Martha Baumgarten met each other while both were teaching fifth grade at an UNO charter school in Chicago, right after, or a few years after the Chicago teachers strike in 2012, which Martha participated in. They arrived amid contract negotiations and amid a public scandal around the mismanagement of funds at UNO, which led to the UNO network being rebranded as what some of our listeners might know as Acero Charter Schools. Renee, who came to that school with a background in elementary education and educational nonprofit work, spent two years teaching there while she completed her master's in social work from the University of Chicago. Martha stayed at UNO for six years. She was there before Renee arrived. Um, and during that time served as a union steward, as the union's vice president for teachers, as a member of the committee that pulled off a merger between the Chicago Teachers Union locals that one represented public school teachers and the other represented um, charter school teachers. They merged, Martha helped them do that. Um, both also, I think, epitomize processes of self-reflection that are so necessary in transformative justice work. Um, so moved by their disturbing encounters with racism and punishment in the various charter schools and charter school networks that they've worked in, um, they've channeled those experiences and reflections into action. Both have been regulars at organizing meetings, picket lines, rallies, and both have taken great risks to hold power brokers to account and to defend everyone's right to good, safe, anti-racist, empowering education. We are so happy to have Martha and Renee on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Hi, thanks Hi. for having us. Well, yes, Renee and Martha, um, tell us about your path to becoming a teacher and also an organizer, whether those are separate or intertwined, you know, how, how did that happen? Why did you stick with it? And um, how did you get to where you are now? Um, I can go first. So I think I always had an interest in working with children um, and helping people. Um, I did a really traditional bachelor's of arts elementary education degree um, at a local art school. Um, but and but then had a really transformative experience. I student taught with a nonprofit um, in Chicago called the Chicago Center for Urban Life and Culture, um, where I student taught in the Chicago public schools, but also had the chance to live um, cooperatively with about 20 other um, student teachers and social work interns um, and kind of experiment with purposeful community living in the city. Um, and that led me to my first um, experience with kind of privatized education. Right after my undergrad, um, I did a program called the Chicago Teachers Residency with the Academy for Urban School Leadership um, with 
um, sorry, with the Academy for Urban School Leadership, which is a private nonprofit that turns around, um, which is a very specific term, um, quote unquote, failing public schools. Um, they are given a contract to manage um, individual schools by the Chicago Public Schools. Um, traditionally schools with low um, test scores. Um, and then all the teachers in their, in the, who are in that given school have to reapply for their jobs. Um, and very, very few are rehired. Um, and then they replace the teachers who are not rehired um, with overwhelmingly whiter and younger teachers. Um, the Chicago Teaching Residency is their graduate program um, where people can earn a master's in education, um, but are also then kind of the younger white people that overtake those jobs. Um, so the students are the same, the building is the same, uh, but the staff com changes completely. Um, and they get a big inc uh, yeah, increase in funding, um, partially through grants and stuff within the Chicago Public Schools and partially through outside funding. Um, and that was a really mis mixed experience for me. Um, the master's program that they do, you work alongside a master teacher for an entire school year, which I think is really valuable for teacher training. Um, but then obviously forcing out um, older teachers who are more likely to be teachers of color um, because of test scores um, is not a great thing. Um, so that was a mixed experience. So I did their master's program and um, taught in a turnaround school for one year. Um, and then um, that wasn't a good fit, so I needed a job. Um, and in July, what was then UNO Charter Schools hired me. Um, I thought I would work there for a year, um, but I ended up staying for six. Um, and I met Renee along the way. Um, and I was able to do that for six years, but I had 32 students in a class. Um, and after six, uh, seven years of it, because I had similar class sizes for my one year in a turnaround school, um, I just hit a wall of burnout. And so now I've made a transition um, to a school district in the suburbs of Chicago um, in a pretty different role. So I'm still in teaching. Um, and I could, we could probably do in a whole other podcast about the city versus the suburbs. Um, but that's how I got where I am now. Okay. I'm hearing the word private. Uh, yeah. And we'll get yeah. to that at some point. Cool. Yeah, so um, my journey was a little less linear than Martha's. Um, I did not actually, I kind of went in undergrad not really knowing what I wanted to do. Ended up majoring in psychology and Spanish and um, entered the teaching field through Teach for America. Um, I won't, I'm sure many people are familiar with the, with the organization. Um, I now, reflecting on it now and knowing what I know now, not sure I would have made that choice. Um, but I am glad that it kind of led me to where I am. Uh, and I, I, I do understand a lot of the pitfalls of TFA, um, which I can kind of get it. I can d dive into those later on. Um, but taught and was kind of plucked out of Chicago um, through that process and placed in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, taught there for two years at a charter school and um, decided I wanted to move back to Chicago once my two years with Teach for America was done. So I moved back and ended up falling in love with teaching. I loved fifth graders, got really lucky by landing another fifth grade position at what was then UNO Charter Schools, which is where I met Martha in our training, summer training, um, day one. So um, we ended up being um, cooperate, 
cooperating teachers. So we were the two fifth grade teachers in the building um, for the next two and a half years. Um, and, and similar to what Martha kind of said, although it happened for me earlier, um, I had kind of hit a, kind of a roadblock in my own personal life. I was experiencing some chronic illness and um, experienced burnout very quickly. So had to leave mid-year um, into my third year at that UNO school and um, entered the nonprofit field. So I worked in development for an educational nonprofit for the next couple years and decided that was like a little too far away from the impact for me. And I had kind of always had this itch in the back of my mind, um, telling me, leaning me towards social work uh, as my degree, my undergrad degree is in psychology. Um, and so I, I landed at the University of Chicago, their School of Social Service Administration, which is just a fancy word for social work. Um, <laughs> And I just graduated about a month ago, and here I am. I'm a new social worker, and, you know, I'm excited about this new journey and also looking to work in schools, uh, ideally. So um, I, I would love to work in a school. I know right now that's really up in the air, um, given COVID and everything that's happening with the pandemic, and there's a lot of question marks around school districts and whether or not they're hiring, et cetera. So, um, you know, in the middle right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Uh, as for organizing, I feel like I kind of stumbled upon organizing a little bit on accident. Um, I, in my second year teaching, and so this is in St. Louis, our school actually wasn't unionized, but um, we had a student on our team, I taught fifth grade, and so he wasn't a student of mine, but he was a student of my, one of my team teachers, uh, who had, um, his mom and his stepdad were murdered in the same day. So he showed up to school that morning with two parents and left with none. And it was something that obviously shook all of us to our core. Um, and I felt like there was something more that I could be doing about helping this one particular student. And this is a really small example, but we ended up raising a good amount of money to get him him set up with him and his siblings set up with his grandmother in their home um, and get her a car. She didn't have any means of transportation, um, and so that was kind of my entry point to organizing. And when I arrived in Chicago to a new union contract, um, felt a little bit like a, a luxury compared to kind of what what I was experiencing in St. Louis and. Um, you know, sl slowly but surely that luxury wore off when I realized just how um, how harmful charter school culture can be in terms of like working their teachers to the bone um, and the culture of no excuses, et cetera. So, um, you know, that's kind of that's kind of how I got here. Yeah, thank you for that. I think both of you have um, have kind of gotten in your answers about the problems with a lot of charter schools. So Renee, you mentioned how this like this can um, reverberate on a very, very personal level for teachers. Like if you have chronic illness, that no excuses can be um, can can be kill, can kill you um, can um, can push people out. And Martha, you talked about, there, there are lots of examples, but the the idea of a turnaround school as a kind of no excuses for a structural quote unquote failure of a school that can clean 
taking out jobs in entire communities and traumatized students who no longer have their teachers' communities to learn with. So talk to us a little bit more about what, yeah, what are the problems with charter schools? How do you see them manifesting? Um, and how do you, how do you explain, how do you explain those limitations in your organizing roles? Sure. Um, so I think the fundamental for me, from my perspective, Renee, please chime in or add anything. Um, the fundamental problem for me with charter schools is that they are rooted in privatization and the money issues related to that. Um, so, right, the whole idea of charter schools as they exist today, because, um, you know, we can go back to like the philosophical roots of them and they were a union thing once upon a time, but let's say for the past 15 years, um, the whole idea of a charter school is that a charter school can do something better than a or sorry, a public school. Um, and in almost every, I believe, almost every state or city that charter schools exist, they essentially get amount of money per student. And usually that amount of money per student is about the same. Um, sometimes it's a little bit less, sometimes it's a little bit more, and you could cut it and dice it a million different ways, but pretty much receiving the same amount per um, kid that the public school down the street is. But usually you're saying you're going to do things better and cheaper. Um, some of the time there's for-profit um, charter companies that are literally trying to do things cheaper um, than the public school down the street and pull a profit. Um, I think a lot of the time, even though most charter schools are nonprofits, you still have more overhead costs. You still have, because you have a separate administrative system than the public school, you have to pay more administrators. You usually have to rent a building. Um, there's just more costs involved. And so you're inevitably finding those cost savings on the backs of someone else. Um, and the huge majority of the time, it's young teachers and it's students of color. Um, it's either putting more students of color in a classroom, so a higher to student to teacher ratio, and or um, asking teachers to work for less or to do more for the same amount or the same amount for less. Um, working longer hours, um, teaching more students, taking on more responsibilities and things like that. Um, and both those systems just aren't sustainable. Um, we all, like anyone with common sense, I don't, not, yeah, anyone with common sense um, knows that 32 students and one adult is not the best way for students to learn. No matter how quote unquote effective that teacher is or what resources they have, like we all know from being in like a challenging workshop or learning a new skill as adults, that if there's 31 other adults and one expert in the room, that's not a good way for us to learn. Um, so either students don't get the experience they deserve or teachers can't handle the pressures and can't stay for an extended period of time. Um, and then those students lose again because they're cycling through teachers every two, three, four years um, who never really get the chance to become experts in their field um, and like be the really awesome teachers that we know that teachers can be with experience and time to develop. Um, and then on top of that, I think there's a huge problem with um, just the accountability for charter schools. Um, in Chicago, we don't have an elected school board. Um, the school board is appointed by the mayor. Um, and that school board decides who get charters and who doesn't. Um, 
or sorry, like who gets their charter license is what you mean by a charter. Um, so a non-elected group of people decide who gets to run charter schools. And then all those charter schools have non-elected boards as well. Um, and so there's just millions and millions of dollars um, being sloshed around to different nonprofits and different for-profit groups and um, different executives and different contracts, um, everything from, you know, custodial stuff to building these new buildings that charter schools are in to now technology, um, especially in this uh, remote learning era. Um, and there's just absolutely no accountability for how those public funds are being spent. Um, and even if through journalism or organ organizing, either at the teacher level or at the parent and family level, um, even if problems are discovered, there's literally no way to do anything about it as a citizen and as a voter. Um, you can't unelect the school board members. You can't unelect the board of the charter school. Um, like there's literally nothing to do. Um, yeah, so those are the big problems that I see. Um, and then you kind of layer American racism on top of all of that. Um, and like these things are not happening or very, very rarely happening to white students, right? Like these things are not happening to middle and upper class students. Um, so really it's our black and brown students and our students um, who are not high income, who are then suffering all these consequences of no accountability of burnt out teachers of large class sizes. Um, and I think the last thing I wanna say is like, there's often related to racism, there's often a reason the public schools are the way they are. Um, if parents or politicians or community members are unhappy with those schools, I've never walked into a public school where the staff um, weren't trying their absolute hardest to provide the absolute best education for students. Um, but they are often facing funding challenges and staffing challenges and bureaucratic challenges um, that are, you know, impossible to overcome. Um, and so I think that's another thing that the charter school movement kind of, I don't know, glosses over or makes it seem like it's just, if that's, if the people at that public school would just try harder, um, then like we wouldn't need charter schools, but that's not the case. Um, so to me, those are kind of like the big three issues with charter schools as they exist in the states today. Yeah, I'm seeing that this, what you said, this critique mirrors a lot of the critique of Teach for America too. You know, younger, um, barely trained teachers entering the poorest low income schools of black and brown students um, when, you know, the opposite is needed. Uh, and the, and the, what's called the, was it Jonathan Kozel uh, calls it the resegregation of the schools, either, mm -hmm. either Alfie Connor. Jonathan Kozel, I forget. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, your experience in charters um, was what led you to become an organizer. So could you both talk about, um, you know, sort of the impetus experience that, you know, jettisoned you to actually do something um, with the union? And I mean, these charters are huge and some of them are listed uh, on the stock exchange. Um, I mean, there are over 7,000 and there, you know, I mean, there are only a few that have any kind of more, um, you know, radical or, or democratic focus, right? Um, sure. 
Um, I'm thinking of the KIPP schools that don't <laughs> and, yeah. and many, many others. Uh, so could you say what happened in Chicago and the schools you were at that you said, okay, I got to take action? Yeah, I can kind of start this one off. I think, um, you know, I, I, I think in general, I know Martha has been a really big leader in terms of uh, charter unions in the city, and I have mostly been a participator. But what I will say is that, you know, having worked in a charter school in St. Louis that was not unionized uh, for a couple of years, I saw um, just kind of the abuse of power when there's absolutely no accountability from any perspective. You know, Martha was just talking about um, for-profit charters and my charter, the first year I was there was run by a for-profit um, company. And so uh, I saw teachers get fired left and right for no probable cause. Um, and, and, and there were just, I, you know, and, and obviously there were stories that I heard about teachers who were outed as gay and then put on a professional improvement plan um, and eventually fired. And it was, you know, justified that it was not because he was gay, but because he was put on this improvement plan and it was somehow related to his teaching um, when there was no problem with his teaching prior to that knowledge. Um, and so I've seen kind of the injustices that happen to teachers and to students. Imagine a student having your teacher leave mid-year because they were fired suddenly. What does that do to their learning? You know, I stepped into a classroom actually three weeks into the school year. I, I started at this school at my, my first year, I started as a Spanish teacher, K through eight. And they had a fifth grade teacher who um, just never told them that, that they, were, they weren't coming back that year. And so they were waiting on the teacher and they had a long-term sub in there for the first three weeks of school and finally needed to fill the role. Um, and I jumped in um, knowing that, you know, with a little nudge from a colleague, but also knowing that I, I really wanted to have my own classroom. Um, as, a, you know, as the Spanish teacher, I was traveling. So um, jumped into this situation, you know, I'm three weeks into the school year and the students have had several different subs walking into the year. Um, and, you know, that was only three weeks in and that was, it took a lot of work to get students to trust me, to understand who I was. I'm obvious, I was obviously this outsider coming in from Chicago um, to St. Louis. I knew nothing about their lives, uh, which, you know, is another critique of teach, a Teach for America um, or a charter school model that really allows that kind of teacher to come in um, I had no idea what I was doing. I, and uh, to, to walk into a situation like that was already pretty um, upending for the students. And so I can only imagine what it's like for a student to have a teacher leave mid-year on a, on a really bad note and to not have an immediate, um, any kind of transition for them. Um, it's, it's very, you know, as a social worker now, it's, it's very traumatizing that that would be considered a trauma when you're, you don't know where your safety or your, um, like there's no consistency in your life. And to, schools are like the base level of, they students spend their time, so much of their time in a school every single day. 
Um, and so schools should be a place of consistency, of safety, of understanding who they can trust and what adults are in the, in the building. And um, I, I think I've just, uh, I've seen how all of that can kind of devolve into chaos when there's no accountability. And so it's, it is so important to have accountability. I, I remember actually once I got to back to Chicago and started that role at the UNO Charter School with Martha, having a conversation about a teacher's union because I had never been part of one. And she said something to the effect of, like, very frankly, it was just like, yeah, it just keeps everybody in check. That's all it is. It is there to keep the administration in check, to keep everyone accountable, and to let them know that, you know, teachers are important and to keep everybody um, kind of on the same level and, under, and, and come to, to a common understanding about what's important for the school. Uh, and I thought that was really well put. And obviously, you can hear Martha explained things so frankly and so simply in terms that make so much sense. Um, I'm a little more long-winded than she is, but I, I think that that sums it up for me. It was just, it, it's a way to keep everyone in check. And I think um, if you're not actively organizing with teachers, either in a union or participating in agitation and protests, um, then you're not really working for the communities that you're located in. Um, yeah, I would totally agree with Renee, um, that I have always, I guess I, in my teaching career, have always been lucky to see the ways that teacher activism and teachers union can help provide accountability and like systems that just make sense. Um, I was really lucky. Well, lucky, yeah, lucky. <laughs> uh, my first year teaching, I was on strike with the Chicago Teachers Union, um, my school started in August and we went on strike in September. So like, welcome to, to urban education. Um, and although that was as a first year teacher was terrifying and overwhelming, it was also so cool um, to see how teachers union works, teachers union work. Yeah, here we go. Um, and see representative democracy work in such a like transparent and cool way. Um, you know, each school in the Chicago, in the Chicago Teachers Union, um, you know, has a delegate and they go to, you know, big House of Delegate meetings every month um, during the strike that was much more often. And, you know, that's how the decisions of the union are made um, with votes in that House of Delegates. Um, and even at the end of our 12 day strike, when we got a final um, contract from, you know, our bargaining team, we sat down as a school and read it and then we voted it up or down and then our delegate took it to the house of delegates and they voted it up or down and i thought that was such a cool thing um to see in action so that was like a really big light bulb moment for me but also reading that contract that contract was about the length of the school year and the length of the school day and teacher pay but um to bring it full circle back to renee's life now it also guaranteed for the first time that social workers had a locked file cabinet to keep student records in. Like that wasn't a thing that they had a right to um, before the 2012 contract. And so, you know, even CTU, which is literally the first teachers union um, in the country and has been negotiating for a hundred years, um, that that wasn't something that was in writing. It wasn't guaranteed at a lot of schools, just shows like how important that accountability piece was. Um, so just some of the details of that 2012 contract were a big light bulb moment to me that like schools are not gonna function the way they should unless um, teachers and community members 
organize and activate um, to keep them accountable. Um, and so then transitioning to what was then UNO, I think was really interesting for Renee and I because we, the union had formed the spring before we started. Um, so we had some um, union rights um, under the Labor Relations Board. Basically, we had um, just cause for firing, but that was about it. Um, and then we got our contract partway through the year. Um, and before we had our contract, there was things like if a student didn't get picked up from school, there was no process for that. Like that student was just the teacher's problem until they could locate a guardian. Like there was nothing. Um, we didn't have duty-free lunches, um, no students in our school, which was a K-8 school, no students had recess. Um, we had, you know, mandatory weekend events, uh, just like all these things that when you don't have just cause and the workers in, a, in any situation don't have a way to stand together um, and say like, this isn't okay or this needs to be fixed, things that don't get fixed. Um, so I think that just kind of that first year and seeing those differences just kind of, I think, reaffirmed for me, like how important organizing is and how powerful teachers unions like specifically can be. I think it's so interesting how y'all have reframed accountability as accountability to a collective, accountability yeah. to process. We hear the word accountability in the media and the sort of PR from charter school networks all the time and privatization hawks. They're saying we need accountability, but what that means is test scores and what that means is austerity on the schools. And so that, that turn to say, no, that's not what accountability is. Accountability is accountability to teachers, students, communities. Um, it makes me wonder so you've got you've made this connection for us between kind of sh shifting the locus of accountability um, in terms of political organizing struggle reimagining what schools are structurally how does that work you're doing in organizing meetings at rallies on the picket line connect back to the work you've done whether renee it's as a social worker or martha in your own classrooms renee obviously your classrooms too um how do you how do you make that connection to your own teaching practice um that's a really good question um i think well i think for me first of all so now having gone on strike twice and almost going on strike once, um, all while teaching like 10, 11, 12 year olds. Um, there's a really interesting moment where you have to explain to your students what's going to happen um, and what has happened. And so I think that was like the first thing for me um, was having that opportunity was like of how to explain to students like what could happen or what has happened. Um, and so using that opportunity to talk to them about different organizing efforts and leadership efforts um, that connect to them and their lives um, has been like a really cool opportunity for me. Um, you know, they love learning about Cesar Chavez. Like that's just one that like um, our, so our UNO school was in a Hispanic, a predominantly Hispanic or Latino neighborhood, um, was, but was also a Hispanic empowerment charter school, um, whatever that means exactly. Um, so the huge majority of our students would have considered themselves Hispanic or Latino. 
Um, and so like, that was a really clear connection to them. Um, and like, what a cool role model, right? Um, and what a cool person to try to like connect myself with. Like, I'm a little bit like Cesar Chavez. Like, um, they thought I was so cool. Um, but I think that was the big thing for me was just like using my organizing or the organizing that was happening around them as a way to show them what community organizing could do and showing them like what they had the power to potentially change. Um, I know in the 20, right after the 2012 strike, when I discussed it with my students, um, almost immediately one of my girls got to, well, I'm going to go to lunch today and I'm going to sit down and I'm not going to get up until they give me a longer lunch period. Like almost immediately um, after, you know, seeing her teachers pick it outside her school for 12 days. Um, and so I think like kids really quickly um, kind of can understand how organizing can impact positive change. And so I think it's something that's actually pretty easy to talk to kids about. Um, and I think I've also just gotten, as my teaching career has gone on, been much more explicit with my students in like discussing um, different power dynamics in society. Like last year, I remember going on like a little rant with fifth graders, but they understood about like how Puerto Rico is a colony. <laughs> like there's, you know, I'm not afraid to say those things anymore. Um, and I think like mostly organizing is like led me to discussions about those sort of things and like made me self reflect. Um, but it's also given me confidence to like say those things strongly um, and like say what I mean um, and not really apologize about it. Well, if I could be devil's advocate for a minute. Um, Acero's mission statement says, transforming oh, yeah. minds through academic yeah. empowerment and success. Yeah. So um, it, it sounds like maybe that's uh, a hypocritical. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, yeah. I, yes. I think there's some hypocrisy there. I think from being in a leadership position in the teachers union and actually getting to interface with a lot of charter school leaders um, in a bunch of different capacities. I think a lot of them truly believe that they're empowering students, but I think what exactly that word means and how we go about it um, is like where the difference lies. Am I empowering students to be good workers in the future economy by teaching them what a complete sentence is and how to write a paragraph and how to take a standardized test? Or am I empowering students to be free thinkers and understand the dynamics of power in our society and how race interplays with their everyday life? You know, so I think everyone thinks they're empowering students to be great adults in the future. Like I said, I've never met an educator who's like, I'm just here to screw over children. Like, I don't know anyone um, who, who thinks that. But I think the, the, the difference is, yeah, what, what, what exactly are we going to teach them in the 13 years we have them in American K-12 education? What do we mean by empower? What do we want them to come out with on the other side? And I think that's the part that's really um, still up for debate in many different situations. Yeah, and I, I'd like to add to that and just say, like, you know, we, we worked for a charter school that was predominantly Latinx, and 
uh, our students, when we first got there, um, I, I, maybe it has changed, Martha, you can let me know. Yeah. Um, but when we first got there, we were, we were given a very clear directive that students were not to speak Spanish in mm. school, mm -hmm. which for many of them, it's their native language. It's what they speak at home. And we were very clearly mm -hmm. as teachers trained to squash any conversation that was had in Spanish. And while I did not follow that directive, um, you know, you can imagine many, many people do, especially when you've got charter schools who are hiring mostly young white folks. They don't, if you don't know any better and you walk into a school and you are the product of capitalism and you've been taught to follow the rules, you do what you're told. And the, unfortunately, that is one thing we were told. And that's obviously a very small example. But what, a, what an example to... What, what kind of a message does that send to our students about their language, their culture, their home, their parents? Um, it, so, you know, that's, I think that's just, I'm glad you brought up the mission statement of Acero <laughs> Schools, because, you know, I, I think, like Martha said, there are, I think intentions are good, but as, as we know, and, and as I've learned through my own process as I'm, I'm sure I, as a white woman I've definitely caused harm to my students um, but I've learned in the process that your intention means nothing when mm -hmm. you've impacted students in a harmful way and being able to understand that harm when it happens and when it's been done and to repair the harm in a way that's meaningful to the the person you've harmed that is more important than your ego or your intentions or your, in my case, two master's degrees. It's just not, you know, our impact on students is the most important thing um, and should be at the center of our work. And I think, I think we lose sight of that when we get on our pedestals and say, well, I know what I'm talking about. That ends part one of our conversation with Martha Baumgarten and Renee Rodolfi of the Chicago Teachers Union. In part two, Martha and Renee talked to us about the situation in charter schools in Chicago and across the nation and the particulars about the strike in 2012 and in 2020. Mm -hmm.